You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I had to limp into the recording studio today here at Savage Industries on the 23rd floor of the Washington Mutual Building in beautiful downtown Seattle overlooking gorgeous Puget Sound because I went on this hike yesterday. I went on a massive hike uh, to this lake in Washington State called Lake Blanca and it's literally three hours straight uphill, a half an hour straight downhill and then you're there and then you have to do that going out straight uphill, straight downhill, hours and hours and I can barely fucking walk. Um, I usually don't talk about what I do on the weekends because who cares, Right. But I wanted to bring it up because when we got to the lake, there were all these white people everywhere, almost entirely white, uh, around this lake named Lake White. And there all of us white people were around White Lake. And people were drinking beer and people were smoking pot and people were eating pot cookies and people were getting pretty stoned, which seemed like not a great idea when you had a massive hike back out through a really twisty, semi-dangerous national forest. But you know, you got to do what you got to do at a beautiful lake uh, on a beautiful day in the summer. But suffice it to say, a whole bunch of white people up in the mountains, all of us with marijuana in our systems, as they say. I only bring this up because right-wing media are jumping all over this report that Michael Brown, he is the teenager who was shot to death in Ferguson, Missouri by a cop, had marijuana in his system. And this is being held up as proof that the cop was in the right, that if somebody has marijuana in their system, they are guilty of something, at least having marijuana in their system. So nothing to see here, folks. Please move along. Just step right over the dead teenager with six bullets in him, one shot through the top of his head lying in the middle of the street. Bullshit. In my opinion, I've been following this what's been going on in Ferguson, as have millions of other people around the country following it, appalled by it, appalled by the police response, angered by the militarization of the police, which I first noticed and noted uh, years ago when I went to the Republican National Convention in 1996 in San Diego, where all of a sudden uh, there was this thing called a free speech zone and a protest zone, and only there were you allowed to protest and peaceably assemble, which is you know, your constitutional right? This idea that you could create a zone for free speech as opposed to regarding the entire country as a zone for free speech and peaceable assembly kind of appalled me then. And it appalled me before I saw the guys patrolling the perimeter of the free speech zone at the 1996 Republican National Convention with what looked like machine fucking guns. And watching the police response in Ferguson, I am recalling that police response in San Diego in 1996, this overreaction, this intimidation, this writing out of our constitution and our rights as Americans, the right to assemble, to protest a crime in this case, a crime committed by the police. You have the police, a police officer, in my opinion, committed a crime. This is Looks like mur I am alleging murder and this man should be arrested, this cop who shot this unarmed teenager to death. And the autopsy report is in and the wounds are consistent 
with the kid having his arms raised in surrender at the time. The idea that the very cop, the very police force whose cop did this is then charged with policing the protests. And we've seen how they're policing the protests with surplus military goods, with tanks, with guns mounted on personnel carriers. There's been an escalation in tension in Ferguson and the police have been doing the escalating and the provoking last night. As I record this last night, the police started shooting tear gas into crowds before hours before the curfew was supposed to go into effect, threatened to shoot a reporter, threatened to mace Chris Hayes from MSNBC for doing his job, his constitutionally protected job. And in all of this, I'm wondering where's the Bundy militia? Where are all the right-wing nuts with guns who insist that they're there to protect our freedoms? That they're there to protect us from a police state gone mad and out of control? Suddenly absent. Suddenly from these same people, same types of people, conservatives, particularly on Twitter, they're the ones passing around the fact that Michael Brown had marijuana in his system. As as if that creates a de facto justification for a summary execution in the middle of the street. Oddly enough... At Lake White People, where all the white high people were getting high yesterday, nobody got shot. Nobody pulled a gun. There were no police officers storming the lake to line up and execute all the high white people. We were unmolested. And if someone had shown up and started shooting at all of these, hate to use the term, privileged white people, no one would point to the marijuana in our systems as justification after the fact justification for a shooting by a police officer or anyone else. I hope you're paying attention to what's going on in Ferguson. Something is happening here and I'm bagging on conservatives right now because it is conservatives, self-identified conservatives who are screaming and yelling about Michael Brown rationalizing his execution by pointing to a petty theft that he may have committed by pointing to marijuana in his system. These are not death penalty offenses, Even conservatives are starting to note the militarization of the police and the threat to our constitutional rights to peaceably assemble and scream and yell and demand redress of grievances. Those rights should apply regardless of your income, regardless of your race, regardless of how lily white or cracker ass a state you may be living in. And I would include among them the right to get fucking high if you choose to. A lot of white people at Lake White People in Washington State yesterday chose to get fucking high without a problem. It is not a problem that Michael Brown may or may not have been high or had traces of marijuana in his system. It is a problem that Michael Brown is dead. It is a problem that the police in Ferguson are treating the citizens of Ferguson as if they are the problem and not the police. It is a problem that the governor of Missouri is not protecting the citizens of Missouri. It is a problem that reporters are being arrested and detained and threatened with death. And I know you come to this show for the sex and the dirt and the advice and the jokes and the fun, but I hope you're paying attention to what's going on in Ferguson because it will impact all of us. It does impact all of us. But this shit, the militarization of the police in particular, if we don't address it, if we don't fix it, if we don't undo it, one day it will impact all of us more directly than it already has. And now your calls. Hey, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old straight B 
female, and I've been dating a guy for a couple years now. And the last six months, we've been doing a long-distance relationship. In just a few short weeks, I'll be moving down to the town he's in, and we'll finally be able to be living together once again. I'm really excited for all of this, except for I just have one thing. When we were first in the same town for the first year and a half of our relationship, my boyfriend shared with me a kink of his. And back then, I wasn't exactly the GGG girl I am now, and I didn't react exactly or at all how I should have. I wasn't receptive to it, and I wasn't willing to exactly give it a fair shot. Now that I'm moving into the same town as him again, and we'll be able to have a more regular and active sex life, I'd really be able to find a way to communicate with him that I'm more willing to give his kink a try. I'm hoping you can give me some advice on how I can breach the subject. As you can imagine, he's been pretty shut off about it since he ever first brought it up, and I kind of shut him down. So I'm trying to find a way that I can open up the conversation and make him feel more willing and comfortable with sharing this kink with me. We have a great relationship, and he's an absolutely wonderful man who deserves for me to do this for him, and I'm more than willing to try it. I'm hoping you can give us some advice. Thanks. I'm sure I speak for everyone out there listening right now when I say, what the fuck is the kink that we're talking about? So many calls like this where people call and they say, I have a kink and da, 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 and they unspool this enormous question or my partner has a kink and they unspool this enormous question and they don't pander to our salacious interests, mine and listeners in what the particular fucking kink we're talking about is. That would go a long way to informing my response and also contextualizing your initial reaction. If his kink was a foot fetish or he wanted to get tied up and you had this shitty, shitty fucking kink shaming, slut shaming reaction to his disclosure, then you look kind of bad. But if the kink was, I want to shit in your mouth, then everybody's on your side when you had your big negative reaction. So, you know, in in, in future, please note other listeners, if you're going to call with a question about a kink, tell us what the fucking kink is for crying out loud. Anyway, getting to your question, how do you handle this? Well, you say you reacted badly two years ago or a year and a half ago to this disclosure, and he may now be very kink shy about this. The only way to communicate to him that you're down with exploring this kink and that you're sorry for your initial reaction and the shyness around the kink that it's induced in him and the shame around the kink that it's induced in him is to apologize for your initial reaction and tell him that you'd like to go there, that you're ready to go there. Not because you're, you know, not because you've reached a point in the relationship where you're going to pity kink fuck him or you feel obligated, but you're more GGG now and you're actually kind of intrigued and interested and up for this. And kinksters, please note, sometimes when you do the disclosure, when you lay your kink cards on the table, as you should, the vanilla person, because they're steeped in the sex negative culture, your partner, if they don't, if you don't hit the fucking power ball and they share your kink and are suddenly like, oh my God, me too, oh my God, a lot of them will have an initial negative reaction because the culture trains us when somebody asks us for something sexual that we're not into or it's not from the standard menu to react with an, oh God, no, as opposed to a, oh, hmm, tell me more. And so you can't allow yourself to be too scalded by that, particularly because as someone falls in love with you, the more time you spend together, you've planted the seed. They'll they'll be turning that kink over in their heads. And what, when they first were getting to know you seemed like something they wouldn't really want to do or weren't really interested in, 
they will be examining that thing from really two sides the longer they're with you, which is the side of, I really love this person and this is important to this person. And so maybe I could go there because I love this person. I want to give them pleasure. But also, I've been thinking about this thing, irrespective of you and your interest in it and your pleasure. But I've been turning this scenario, this fetish, this kink over and over in my head. And now I am kind of curious about it. There's an appeal and I'd like to go there. So kinksters, when your vanilla partner, if they had a negative reaction, comes around, believe them. Don't feel pity fucked and let go of the sort of hurt from the initial reaction. And if they want to go there with you because they love you, they want to give you pleasure and or they're now intrigued, you've planted that seed and they are curious about that kink. Take yes for an answer and fucking go there. Hey, Dan, I'm a 22 year old male and I've got, a, I guess, a pretty basic question for you. So I've started seeing this girl pretty recently, and I'm having trouble staying hard when we have sex. Now, normally this isn't a problem for me. In my last relationship, I could go, you know, 40 minutes without stopping. It wasn't a problem. But it seems with her, after, you know, 5, 10 minutes, it just kind of goes away. Now, I know this is probably just a big psychological problem, but I'm wondering if you have any advice for, you know, to help me kind of break through this barrier. There's not a physiological issue here. Your dick works. It worked with your last girlfriend. You stumbled with this new girlfriend, and now it's become performance anxiety, self-fulfilling prophecy, a negative feedback loop that's decimating your dick a little bit. doesn't sound totally decimated. The only way around this, the workaround, is to decenter your dick, is to have sex whether your dick is hard or not, to take the pressure off. Men will develop performance anxiety when – all of the sex hinges upon whether or not they can sustain the erection. If you can have sex, regardless of whether you have an erection or not, because you're going to have oral sex, you're going to do mutual masturbation, you're going to roll around, then you can pivot immediately from loss of erection to other things that you enjoy. And if you take the focus off your dick, not just hers, but also yours for a while, you will be surprised that your dick bounces right back. Your erection will return if you sit there saying the sex stops because my erection is gone and you stare at your limp dick going, get hard, get hard, get hard, it's not going to come back. So with this new girl, talk about it. Make sure you're both on the same page and make sure that you both understand that dicks come and go sometimes. And if it goes, the sex doesn't have to stop. Indeed, the sex will continue. And if the sex continues, uh, you'll get back in a groove and your dick will come back. I promise you. Hi, Dan and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm calling on behalf of my friend who's sitting here very nervously next to me. Um, I played the uh, love cast for her before, and so she's excited to maybe have you answer her questions. She is 60, and her relatively new boyfriend is 66, and they've been sexually active for about a month, and they've been going out for a few months. And, you know, she has more of a sexual past and, you know, a wild side than he does. She's wondering how to kind of broach this. So far, it's been really basic missionary, no orgasms for her, one-time oral sex and her on top. It was, you know, a little shining light. But afterwards, he specifically said, I want you to know that it can't be wild like that every time. She really likes him. She's dated some horn dogs in the past, and she'd rather be on this side of things. But at the same time, 
her dream is to have this be really connected. You know, she'd like it to be tantric. That's what she just told me. Um, so any suggestions? We've listened to the, you know, love cast before. They're going to see, try smoking a little pot. She doesn't know if he does, but she's going to try and find out. Any other questions? Uh, he's a good Christian boy background. She wants to make sure he feels really positive about all of this. Joining me by phone to help me handle this one, Joan Price, who is a sassy 70-year-old advocate for senior sexuality. She's the author of the award-winning Naked at Our Age, talking out loud about senior sex. She blogs about sex and aging and other things at nakedatourage.com, where, among other things, she reviews sex toys from a senior perspective and occasionally scolds me. Welcome back to the show, Joan. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't scold you very much, though, do I? <laughs> oh, I appreciate it. It's a given. <laughs> Only take. when you really need it. <laughs> you know, I'm a Catholic boy. I like to be spanked. Um, oh, I knew that. I knew that. So uh, your best advice for this caller, she's 60. She's dating this 66-year-old guy. They're having and – she, and she really likes him, and she's getting some sort of you know, emotional intimacy from him that she values. But the sex sucks, and the one time they had sex in such a way that she could – get off, that she could come, he immediately told her afterwards not to expect that very often, that wild stuff, that woman on top and I eat your pussy craziness. Um, well, I think that it would really help her to figure out what her version of this statement would be, to tell him, honey, I really like our relationship, I want to make it work, but my se- and my sexual pleasure is very important to me, and I need to tell and show you what works for me so that I can have orgasms. Are you open to that? Mm -hmm. That doesn't shame him. It doesn't make her sound terribly wild. I mean, it just makes her sound reasonable. She says she really likes him and she's dated horn dogs in the past. She'd rather be on this side of things. But there's a real difference between a horn dog who's only out for his own pleasure and uh, someone who is emotionally available to him, but is only out for his own pleasure. I mean, if, if neither of these kinds of men that she dates focuses on her pleasure, she's not going to get there without a conversation. Well, I think you're making a big leap there. When she said she's dated horn dogs in the past, she didn't say who were only focused on their own pleasure. It's possible to be a horn dog who's invested in your partner's pleasure or invested in, you know, wants her to come. She's with guys who are only about the sex, and the sex was great, but it was only about the sex. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's possible, too. Yeah. As opposed to this mm-hmm. guy who the, the intimacy is there, and she enjoys spending time with him, and he's interested in a committed relationship, but the sex is lacking. I know. And in such a huge way. And yeah. And how does she handle it? She, they specifically mentioned that he's a good Christian boy, right? There's nothing anti-Christian about a woman's pleasure. I know that, and you know that, but a lot of <laughs> a lot of a lot of Christians don't know that. There is I a lot know of that. well. Then let me pose this to these good Christians: If God didn't want a woman to have orgasms, why did He or she give the clitoris four thousand nerve endings when it has no other function than pleasure? Because God is trying to fuck us. Because God sets oh. traps for us. Don't you see? Why would God make some people gay? If, he, if gay sex is a sin that gets you cast into a lake of fire for all eternity, because he sets traps for us. So he gave women clitorises to dare them 
to have sexual pleasure and then throw them into hell for it. Don't you see, Joan? It makes I'm complete sorry. and perfect sense I, if you just adopt the Christian anti, you know, the fundamentalist batshit right wing evangelical crazy Catholic Christian bullshit about sex. If you just embrace that, suddenly it all makes sense. But we don't know if he's that, or if she fears that because he's religious, he's going to react that way. But no, I just want to game it out. What if? He is the kind of older, conservative, good Christian upbringing guy who regards a woman with desire, a woman's sexual agency, a woman making sexual demands as not ladylike and threatening and emasculating. How does she process that? How does she walk him through that? Or how does she walk through that minefield? She breaks up with him. I mean, Dan. <laughs> well, I, I'm on your side there, but you know, sometimes you have to take what you got. And I don't want to say that people well, who are 66 we, can't get anybody else, but there's a stage of life where you like you weigh, you know, what you can get, how much time you have left, the intimacy that you need versus the sex that you're having, and sometimes you, you know, you pay the price. Decide not to have good sex for the rest of your life. Well, it's not a decision I would make, but it's certainly a decision that some people make. She wouldn't be asking a friend to call you if she were happy with that. Okay, so our advice is have a conversation, or your advice, have the have conversation. Have a conversation. Yeah, have a really strong conversation where she does not um, blame him. She does not, she doesn't even have to bring up her, her wild side of her past, although there's nothing to be ashamed of. Of course, she's 60 years old. She's had a, she has a past. Mm-hmm. We would hope so. But to be very clear that she knows what she needs to reach orgasm, and she wants to teach him that. And wouldn't that be wonderful? Is he open to that? If he says no to that, then what's the future of a relationship? If he doesn't even realize she's not having orgasms or doesn't even realize it could be better because that's all he knows, then I would think he'd say, oh, well, yeah, teach me. I mean, they are having sex before marriage, so there's got to be some leeway there. That is a good sort of fissure to, to press on. It's a good crack to drive the wedge into when people who are sexually conservative for religious reasons are having premarital sex. You can always go, well, what the fuck are we doing yeah, then if this yeah. is about that? My advice, of course, you know, everyone predict my advice. If you love him and the sex sucks, date him and be with him and fuck the horn dogs on the side. <laughs> and then he finds out and it's all over. I wouldn't go along with that because somebody like this is not going to be open to an open relationship. And the cheating on the side is going to make her feel even more guilty than she does about, about going to him and saying, oh, this isn't working for me yet, but let me show you what will. Let's address quickly the fear of being alone because a lot of these questions yeah. have like in them somewhere there's this fear of being alone. If I assert myself and he goes or, or, or you know, the relationship is over because he can't do this for me or won't do this for me or I freak him out and he walks, then I'm going to be alone. But – uh, and my only point that I would make to someone, if this is indeed part of her issue and her fear is, wouldn't you rather be alone with a vibrator than with a guy who treats you like a jack-off machine, who jacks off inside you, basically? If he's not concerned with your pleasure, then you're just a human fleshlight. Right. And if in that situation, I would rather have friends I hang out with and I enjoy spending my time with and a vibrator that meets my needs than – a guy I enjoy spending time with who jacks off inside me and makes me feel terrible and makes me feel as if my needs and my pleasure aren't important. I totally agree with you. And one thing that happens as we get older and older is we feel, first of all, we feel invisible. We feel that the partners that we would like to be with are not even noticing us anymore. And then we feel 
like it's over, like we've had our chance and we'll be alone if this one person, this person who is suddenly interested in us, we, we give up. And I would like to say to her, it's really better to be lonely because you're alone than to be lonely because you're with the wrong person. Oh my God, that breaks my heart. Yeah. That's so well said. I want to lie down on the floor in the fetal position for half an hour and think about it. Oh, I'd love that. I'll keep talking. (laughs) But I can't lie down on the floor in the fetal position and think about it because we have to get on to the next call. But thank you, Joan, so much for jumping on the phone. Um, Your website again? My website is uh, my website is joanprice.com. My blog is nakedatourage.com. Joan Price, check out her book, Naked at Our Age, Talking Out Loud About Senior Sex. Thanks again, Joan. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks so much. Hi, Dan. I'm a straight-identified girl. I've never been with a girl, but I kind of had always had feelings that maybe it would be interesting to try being with a girl at some point. I currently have a boyfriend, and I went to a bar like a few days ago, and a gay bar, and um, I jokingly slash seriously asked if I could maybe kiss a girl, like if he would mind that. And he said that he'd be okay with it. So I ended up talking to a girl and we kissed and I didn't think it was a big deal. I kind of just thought it was nice and fun and asked her for her number because I think she's a really cool person. Basically, we were talking a lot the next day and I was really interested. So I talked to my boyfriend about maybe how he would feel with me exploring things with her and all that. Um, And he said he was pretty cool cool about it. He said it kind of made him nervous a little bit, but he was was willing to do it for me if it was just a physical thing. And at first I thought, okay, this is awesome. That works. But the more I talk to her, the more I feel like I just don't know if I can just be physical with her. Like, I, I really like her. And I just don't know what to do because I really like, I love this guy and I know him. <laughs> and we've only been together for like three months, but I really love him and I know that I like him. Um, This girl I don't know. I've only known her for a few days and I'm really confused. (laughs) Um, And I'm kind of feeling like I can't let this go, but I feel like I'm crazy to let him go. You kept saying that your boyfriend was cool about this girl, but you never mentioned how the girl felt about the boyfriend. I'm just curious as to whether when you were in that gay bar and you made out with that girl and you got her number and you've been texting and uh, getting to know her, if you ever disclosed to her that you are up until this moment straight identified and you actually have a boyfriend, there are some, you know, women, lesbians, bi women, bi dykes you'll meet in gay bars who are totally down with making out with a girl or hanging out with a girl or just having NSA ish sex with a girl who has a boyfriend at home and some who aren't cool with that and wouldn't want to get involved with you knowing that you had a boyfriend back at home. So uh, that's just something to think about, whether you've disclosed that to the girl or not. Uh, If you haven't disclosed that to her yet, you might want to, and that might take this decision off your hands about whether anything further is going to happen with this girl because she might not be interested in pursuing anything further with you once she has all the information to which she is entitled. That said, you say you love this guy, and then you added, and I know him. I love him and I know him. And my reaction hearing you say that uh, was, yeah, you love him and you know him, but it doesn't sound like you know yourself. It really doesn't. You are very unsure 
of your sexual identity uh, and, and who you want to be and how you want to move through this world and who you want to be with. Three months in, you say you love him and you know him. You really can't know somebody after three months. And I hate to say this, but you really can't love somebody at three months. You can feel as if this is someone that you could love. And we often round that infatuation, lust, mix up to love. And then if it's borne out, you know, if you're still with that person a year or two later, once they're farting in front of you, once you've had your first seven or eight major fights and decided to stay together, then it was love. Right then, you then you say, of course, I was right in those first few months when I said that it was love and I was in love, and that's not exactly true. It just means that you had a hunch in those first couple of months that was borne out. A lot of people have that same feeling, that same hunch, that same at three months. I know this person, I love this person, and it isn't borne out. It's not true, and that's a possibility here. This could be someone that you are so infatuated with at three months that you believe that you could love this person and the magical thinking part of your brain is telling you you do love this person and you actually can't know that yet. You don't know him well enough to say that yet. To feel it now, that's legitimate. That happens. Feeling that lovishness at three months is what inspires us to hang in there past the fights, past the farts. But some part of your rational brain has to intervene and say, yes, you're feeling love, but it's not, you're not there yet. We don't know yet. Soon, though, we're going to find out. Why am I undermining your relationship with this guy uh, by unpacking all of this? Because I don't think that you should be committed to him right now. Because I don't think you know who you are quite yet. I think you go to him and you say, I'd like to keep seeing you. I'd also like to pursue something with this girl. Um, the limitations you want to place on me right now, I can't accept at this stage of my life as I'm trying to figure out who it is that I am. With you saying it, it can only be purely physical and there can be no emotional connection, no romantic connection. And emotional and romantic connection is part of what I want to explore with this girl or with women as I figure out who it is that I am. I want to be with you. I, I feel as if I love you. And these things could happen concurrently or I'm going to have to pull the plug on our relationship. And then maybe if I go out there and explore and you're still single a year or two from now and I have a better sense of who I am and what I want, we can reconnect and pick back up. But right now, to figure out who I am, right now to really know myself, I'm going to have to be free or single or both. Hi, Dan. This is a person who is calling because of a very simple but kind of weird reason. So I have gotten into, for lack of a better term, plucking out my pubic hair, uh, sometimes in groups and sometimes individually. Uh, a lot of the times I do it uh, early in the morning or when I have nothing else to do. There's like a weird uh, satisfaction, complex pain thing going on, a little bit of that, you know, just at the moment of... Uh, the minute a hair gets ripped out of the, the balls, there's kind of like a satisfying feeling, sometimes even a sound if I grab enough pubic hair like higher up. So uh, sorry about the graphic nature of this, but uh, I'm trying to figure out if this is an obsessive compulsion thing or if maybe I have a sexual uh, relationship to this activity. I don't know which... I don't even know if it's a problem. It certainly doesn't interfere with my work or the rest of my life. But uh, let me know if uh, uh, this is a bad thing 
or not me plucking out my pubic hair. There's an easy way to tell if this is an OCD thing, if this is about some sort of obsessive compulsive disorder and stress relief, the same way some people will bite their nails, some people will you know, cut and say it relieves this internal stress and tension, uh, or if it's a sexual thing. Really easy way to tell. Is your dick hard? As you are laying there doing this in the morning, are you jacking off? Is there some element to this pain that is eroticized or some element about this act that for you is erotic? And that tells us quickly and simply and obviously uh, whether or not this is sexual. That you failed to mention that you're jacking off while you do this, that you failed to mention that you are erect or hard or turned on or aroused is a really good indication that you are not jacking off, not turned on, not aroused, not hard as you are doing this. And so for me, that points to some sort of mild, relatively harmless, obsessive compulsive thing. There's actually a condition called trichotillomania, which is people pulling out, often eating their hair. Uh, it is an OCD disorder. It doesn't sound like you have it bad. You know, there are people who bite their nails a little bit. They don't have a problem. They don't necessarily need to go to a doctor. They don't need to be on meds about it. Uh, there are people who pull out all of their hair, eat it. They make themselves sick in the process. They make themselves look disfigured. They pull out their eyebrows. They pull out their eyelashes. Uh, that's a problem. People who eat their hair, that's a problem. That you lay in bed in the morning and to relieve some sort of weird-ass stress, yank out a few pubes, and it doesn't interfere with your enjoyment of life or your sexuality or create a problem in your relationship or leave you disfigured. I don't necessarily think that's a problem yet. But if your hand begins to drift up your body toward your eyelashes and your eyebrows and the hair on top of your head, yeah, then you're going to have a problem. And then you might want to see a shrink about this OCD-ish disorder, this non-sexual compulsion that you've developed. But if it's limited to the hairs on your balls or the hairs removed from your balls for the rest of your life, then I think it's a relatively harmless quirk and not one you need to worry about. But monitor. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old female from Sacramento, California. I've been with my boyfriend for about a year now. Uh, I'm really happy with this relationship, and he is too. We're monogamous and committed, and I'm just thoroughly enjoying myself. Uh, my boyfriend recently landed his dream job. He's super excited. I'm jazzed for him, and I just couldn't be happier for him. He will be working on an election campaign, which means do long, crazy hours and high stress for about three months. He's been in the job for about a week, and I'm beginning to realize what it means to work crazy hours. He's working about 13-hour days, Monday through Sunday, and he's really only been home to sleep. Um, I'm working on my master's and also working full-time for about a year or so now, so I'm not exactly twiddling my thumbs while he's at work. Anyway, so my question is this. How do we maintain a healthy relationship? Do we schedule sex? Do people do that? I want to support him in this venture. I know that he is going to be exhausted and emotionally drained for about three months straight. I want to know how I can best support him as a partner. Do you have any advice for this? Um, I know there are a lot of busy couples out there, and I'd like to know how they do it. Thanks so much. When you ask, how do I make sure we maintain a healthy relationship during this time, what you mean, you're asking me this question, right? So what you mean is, how do I make sure we're still finding the time to fuck in the next three months? That isn't necessarily what you want to do if you want to have a healthy relationship three months and two days from now. Because you don't want to be one more goddamn thing he has to do every day or every other day. You don't want him thinking when he's at work, working his 13, 14-hour days, that he's 
pissing off his girlfriend. You don't want to make him choose between you and his dream job. You don't want to force that kind of choice. You want to be the person that he knows that he can have and have his dream job too. So the best thing to do is for you to say, look, you're going to be crazy busy for the next three months and I'm crazy busy with my job and I'm working on my master's degree. So we're probably not going to see much of each other. Let's hang out when we can. If we get together, we both have the energy. We can bang out a quickie and then you can get right back to work. If you have a free half hour at work and you want me to slip into the building when I have some free time and fuck you in a hallway, I will. But otherwise, I'm not going to place any demands or have any expectations or put any pressure on you to perform for me while you go pursue your dream. That's how you maintain a healthy relationship in a circumstance like this. You take the pressure off. You don't add pressure on. That said, if this is his dream job and he does really well, and this is going to be his career, if he's going to work in politics, if he's going to work on campaigns, this is going to happen again. Campaigns roll around. Elections roll around. You might be signing up for this kind of sex drought once a year in the three months running up to November, every other November, or if he works on presidential campaigns every four years. But people who work on campaigns, people who make that their lives, people who are professional political consultants or campaign operatives, their partners are neglected in September, October, and early November. And so this is going to happen again and again. If that's not something that you can bear and this is his dream job, maybe you guys aren't right for each other. But if you can get through 12 short weeks of a little bit of phone sex here and there, of masturbating and thinking about him while he masturbates and thinks about you, of the occasional quickie early in the morning or late at night when you're com- both completely exhausted, then you can have him and he can have his dream job and you can have your master's degree and everything else. But circling back to your question, how do you maintain a healthy relationship? You go without sex for about three months. You accept that you're going to go without sex for about three months. And then if sex happens, bonus, Yahtzee, whoop-de-doo. Otherwise, pat him on the head, tell him you'll see him and blow him and fuck him three months from now. And then when you're bearing down on finishing your master's degree, or who knows, maybe you're going to go on from getting your master's to get your PhD. There may be a time when you're too busy, when you're under too much pressure to meet his needs. And you're going to look at him and say, you know, September, October rolls around and I'm not on you about meeting my needs sexually. And now it's my crunch time. You can't be on me. Go jack off. See you in six months. Hi, this is a a high school male. So I recently had my first relationship with a man. And we dated for three months before he came out to me as straight. Like, when we were dating, he seemed totally into me. Like, we we made out a lot, and he seemed like he really loved me, and we had sex a couple of times. But then it just sort of faded. He didn't want to kiss me anymore. He didn't want to cuddle. And then he said that he just wasn't attracted to men anymore. So we broke up, and I just want to know, does, does that happen? From what I know, sexual orientation doesn't change. You can't turn guys gay and stuff like that. So what happened? He said he doesn't believe in attraction fluidity. He just said he stopped being attracted to men. So was he lying or was he straight all along? I'm just very confused. Please help. 
My heart goes out to you. You sound like you're in a lot of pain about this. Um, first love, first breakup. It sucks. It hurts. Uh, I don't want to minimize that at all. Uh, but I do want you to keep it in perspective, right? This was probably going to end at some point. Very few people who are grownups are with the people that they had their first big relationships with in high school. So this was destined to end. It ended in a way that made you feel terrible, made you feel worse than just a normal ending would because you are standing there wondering what the hell was up with him that whole time, whether the relationship was a lie, what he was doing and who he is. And you're left with questions that you can't answer and that I can't answer. Was he lying? I don't know. I doubt it. You know, kissing, cuddling, having sex, being boyfriends for three months. That's kind of an elaborate ass lie. I don't think he was lying. Was he straight all along? I don't know. He could be bi. He could be gay and have panicked at what it meant to be in a relationship. A lot of people come out as gay because they have to. They get sort of backed into a corner because they're going to be outed by the fact that they have a boyfriend and they have a relationship. Um, People are going to wonder. People are going to ask. And he may have pulled the plug on this relationship because although he was out to you as either bi or gay – He wasn't ready to be out to anybody else and he's retreated in a panic back into the closet and now says he's not gay because he doesn't want to be gay or he's not ready to accept that he is gay or bi. We can only speculate as to what exactly is up or was up with your ex-boyfriend. The only person that you can know anything about for sure is yourself. You are gay. You had feelings for him. You believed that those feelings were reciprocated and there was evidence that those feelings were reciprocated and then something happened and he wanted out and he got out and time will tell. Really, you're going to have to jump in a time machine and go ahead five or ten years to figure out exactly what happened. What was up with him? In five or ten years, he'll either be openly gay and a little embarrassed about how he reacted in a panic during his first relationship or he'll be out and by and you'll get that It wasn't necessarily a lie for him to say in high school that he was into girls because he was just not exclusively. And you were the proof of that. And there was something real there, but he got scared and ran or maybe he is straight. There are more heteroflexible people in the world sometimes. than I think we gays want to admit, I wish I could give you more comfort. You sound like you're in a lot of pain. Stop stressing about the questions you can't answer. And focus on the answers that you have. You are gay. You are capable of being in a relationship. You are capable of loving another man or another boy openly and making yourself vulnerable to that person. Those are all good things about you. Good qualities that you'll carry on into your next relationship. And the relationship after that. And the relationship after that. Until you wind up offering those things to the guy who sticks around for years and years or decades and decades. So stop tormenting yourself by wondering about things you can't know about him, about what his deal was, about why it ended. And comfort yourself by focusing on what you do now know about yourself. We're going to take a quick break from the calls for an interview. Jillian Keenan is a freelance writer in New York City. Uh, She is 
on top of the world, I think, as freelance writing goes. Her stuff has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, Washington Post, The Atlantic. She's covered everything from climate change to North Korea to economic conditions in the Philippines. But she also writes about sex and really thoughtful pieces about sex and sometimes very personal pieces about sex. If you missed her piece, Finding the Courage to Reveal a Fetish in the New York Times Modern Love column last November, go look it up. Some of her other sex writing uh, that you might want to check out includes Marry Me and Me, an article that she wrote for Slate where she called for the legalization of polygamy and Are Your Sex Toys Safe, a piece she wrote for Playboy. You can find links uh, to these pieces and other examples of Jillian's really terrific work at her website, JillianNYC.com. And she wrote a piece that went up on Slate yesterday, on Monday, about uh, kink. And the title of the piece is, Is Kink a Sexual Orientation?, and Jillian argues that it is. And Jillian, of course, you know, when anyone's going to write a piece like that, the first thing they have to do is kick a hole in me. And so Jillian joins <laughs> us by phone right now to talk about this piece. So Jillian, like, I'm not quite in the lead, but I'm like a couple of paragraphs from the lead where you're like taking me on. Because I have argued that kink is not a sexual orientation. My POV about kink is, you know, I, have, I guess I have a really reductive view of sexual orientation. Sexual orientation is who you're oriented to, the people you want to fuck, gay, bi, lesbian, straight, sexual orientation. Um, and so, you know, kink or polyamory, I think kink is how you love, not who you love. And sexual orientation is who you love and kink is how you love them. And I think, you know, I've gotten in trouble also with polyamorous for suggesting that polyamory is not an orientation. It's a relationship structure. It's a, it's a model uh, but not necessarily – and I find it crazy that I get in trouble for saying it because I'm also the one out there always saying that people are not monogamous and I defend poly relationship structures as perhaps healthier than monogamous relationship structures. But I don't see it as an orientation. But you do. So now I'm going to stop rambling and let you make the case that kink, particularly BDSM, is an orientation. Yeah, you know, I actually agree with you, Dan. Um, I think that orientation is about who you love, not how you love. Um, I guess where we differ is that um, for me, kink, and specifically in my case, BDSM, is also about who I love, uh, not how I love. As I wrote in the piece, I think it's a little reductive um, to say that uh, BDSM is how I love my husband. That's technically true, um, but it's also kind of simplistic. Um, I think what I compared it to in my piece is uh, that to me it feels similar to saying that homosexuality uh, is not an orientation because um, penis in anus is merely how a gay man loves his husband. Um, I think we'd all agree that really what matters in love and in sexual orientation um, is who is putting his penis uh, in a butt. And it's the same for me. <laughs> well, that, well um, I got to jump in there quickly and say not all gay men have anal sex. Something like 25-35% of gay men never have anal sex. So, sure. And I mean, there are plenty of heterosexual couples who never have penis and vagina intercourse either. Um, so I'm just being simplistic to make a point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for me, it's, it's BDSM is absolutely not and has never been uh, the how of, of how I get off. Um, I think I wrote kind of craftily and explicitly in my piece. It's far more about who is, uh, let's say, beating me with a hairbrush. <laughs> um <laughs> Then it is about how that activity occurs. Uh, uh, you, you've lost me. This just seems like a, like a semantic trap. I don't. I don't. I don't see the difference. Well, I think we could make the case that orientation itself is a little bit of a semantic issue. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, we all love who we love, and we love how we love, and um, this is all wordplay. But I, I do think that this is a um, 
a conversation and a wordplay exercise that matters. Why do you think this issue matters? Like describing BDSM as uh, an orientation or upgrading it to an orientation. Why do you think that's important? Yeah. Um, well, first, thank you for uh, asking me. Um, I think <laughs> that it both does and does not matter. Um, on the one hand, as I wrote in the piece, um, it doesn't matter in the sense that uh, for kinky people, this is not a human rights issue, um, as the orientation question has been and still is for the LGBTQ community. Um, so in that sense, it doesn't matter because it, it's not about human rights. Um, but on the other hand, um, it's been two years since I first wrote about uh, my own kink for the New York Times. Which was very, very brave. Well, thank you. But despite the fact that it's been two years, Dan, I still get emails about it, honestly, three or four times a week. And some of these emails really blow my mind. Just a few days ago, I got an email from a Syrian refugee who wrote that she had to leave her home, leave her family, leave behind all her friends, and flee her country to escape the war. Um, and yet still, despite all those very real problems, um, the experience of sexual loneliness and isolation is so universal and so widespread uh, that despite all the other problems in her life, she still felt the need um, to write to me about about her kink, um, which is the same as my own. Um, I've also received emails from teenagers who mentioned uh, having suicidal impulses because they felt so sexually broken or damaged. Mm -hmm. um, I got one email. It was very memorable from a college student whose parents forced him to enroll in domestic violence therapy when they found his um, consensual adult BDSM pornography. So uh, I think it matters because as far as I'm concerned, uh, any conversation that helps these people feel like they are as healthy and normal as everyone else, which of course they are, uh, does matter. And, and I've been, uh, I think I've facilitated that conversation for 24-ish years in Savage Love. I've been writing about kink in a very affirming and positive way. In part for that reason, there's just too many people walking around feeling like they're damaged or feeling like there's something wrong with them or they're they're sick or sinful in the same way gay people were told to believe that they're sick and sinful. And there are examples where uh, kinky people uh, have been not subjected to systemic, I think, oppression, but in, you know, uh, discrete acts of oppression where people have had their kids taken away from them because they're kinky sure. by an ex. That said, like, can we have that? I, I, you know, I, it's not like I want to guard sex orientation just for us queers, but <laughs> is it, can we talk about these issues? Can we talk about kink? Can we talk about kink being a, a, a healthy uh, aspect of so, or, or something that someone can incorporate into their lives in a healthy way? There are people out there who are incorporating all sorts of things into their lives in unhealthy ways without having to slap the, the orientation label on it. I, I guess I, I feel that there's like this orientation creep happening right now. Um, hmm. We used to talk about gay, straight, lesbian, bi as orientation. Now we hear that bestiality is an orientation, polyamory is an orientation, uh, pedophilia, there is an argument. Uh, James Cantor particularly makes this case that pedophilia is a sexual orientation, BDSM is a sexual orientation. At what point is what isn't a sexual orientation? Sure, and, and that's a reasonable question. Um, I guess I would uh, flip it back on you a little bit and ask, why does it matter if everyone, I mean, we, we already probably agree uh, to a certain extent that almost everyone, if they self-identify as such, does have a sexual orientation. Um, and even if that's just as um, kind of simplistic as heterosexual, bisexual, homosexual, or asexual. Mm. Um, so if everyone already does have an orientation, um, what does it matter if uh, the diversity of labels is um, expanding? Well, potentially there's a legal problem. You know, we have a lot of 
statutes, a lot of things that have written a lot to protect people based on their sexual orientation. And are we going to face a lawsuit in 10 years from, or five years or five minutes from someone who says the law in the state protects sexual orientation. There is now a body of evidence that bestiality is a sexual orientation. And there's another law in the state that makes it illegal for me to fuck my dog. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that kind of more, it's a separate conversation because uh, I, I understand in theory that there is potential for abuse of the legal system if everything under the sun uh, becomes an orientation and therefore a legally protected category. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that we're having enough trouble as it is uh, really nailing down homosexuality as a protected category that I think um, we don't need to worry about too many categories being protected at this point. Um, so if, if, if it seems that that is going to come to pass, then I, then I guess we can have a conversation about that. But for now, um, I think uh, it's a little bit generous, I guess, to um, think that the law would go too far in protecting sexual minorities, since, as I'm sure you would agree, right now it's not going far enough. One of the points that you raised in the piece that I thought was really interesting was the incidence of bisexuality in the BDSM community. <laughs> yeah, that's something that's very interesting for me, too. Yeah, would you unpack that for us? Uh, yeah, so um, I wrote a little bit in the piece about my own experience. For years, I did identify as bisexual um, because I have been and still am uh, sexually attracted to both people who identify as male and people who identify as female. And I've um, acted on that attraction in both cases. Um, but, you know, as I kind of came out as kinky publicly in the last few years and started really talking about uh, kink and exploring my own sexuality, I realized that it's not quite accurate to say that I'm attracted to men as a group or to women as a group. I realized that I'm attracted to sexually dominant people as a group or tops uh, as a group, and gender is just irrelevant. And a study from the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom found that 36% of um, BDS, BDSM practitioners uh, self-identify as bisexual, which is a much, much higher rate than the kind of 2 to 3% rate that has been reported and overall. Why, and why do you think that is? Because they're oriented towards people who are dom or sub or switches somehow, or they're oriented toward the acts. You know, I know I've known people um, in the kink scene in Seattle uh, you know, I've known straight guys who play with gay guys who go get tied up by gay sure. guys because gay guys have the gear, right? Um, huh. Like, because they can get it for free. They can do the sort of things they want to do. They can have the bondage S&M experiences they want to have, not with their preferred erotic target, not with a woman, but yeah. but they're still able to tap into what's sexy about being tied up, even though it's not, you know, Angelina Jolie tying them up. It's some guy and they close their eyes and pretend it's Angelina Jolie. I've met a lot of guys like that. Mm, yeah. Who describe themselves as by from the neck up and the waist down. Is how <laughs> often I've heard them describe themselves. Um, is that yeah. the kind of bisexuality you're talking about? Or you're literally talking about people who uh, are kinky or into BDSM and it is entirely irrelevant whether they're the person that they're with or playing with or partnered with is male or female so long as they're dominant. You know, I, I can't speak for anyone else. Um, I can only say that in my experience and in the cases of a few um, other kinky people who I've chatted with socially, um, I, I think it really is, in my case, an orientation towards uh, certain dominant identities, just as, you know, many um, heterosexual female friends of mine would describe having an orientation towards male identities. Mm -hmm. um, I think that fundamentally all of us, uh, gay, straight, bi, kinky, whatever, um, 
are oriented towards identities fundamentally, uh, not towards genitals or chromosomes. Really? Um, and really? I think, wait, wait. You really yeah, think I that? Really, I, I, I reject well, that I categorically. And I would point you toward kink ads. I would point you toward kink personals. You don't see many <laughs> kink personal ads from somebody saying, dominant seeking submissive gender irrelevant. Well, I think that um, anecdotally, and I've spent a lot less time um, you know, researching these things than you have, but <laughs> I, I've definitely seen ads for people who say um, dominant seeking submissive male or female. I guess I haven't seen the phrase gender irrelevant. Uh, I, I, um, and, I've seen a few of those ads too from by people in the kink scene, but you just don't see ads from people saying, I'm submissive and I want a dominant, gender relevant, and vice versa. That people do seem to have a gender preference that uh, overrides or is more important than their kink preference. Right. Well, I think that um, we've found uh, strong evidence to suggest that gender preference is kind of a sliding scale across the board. That it's a little reductive to say gay, straight, bi, three categories, that's it. Um, there's no gray areas in between. Um, and I'm sure that's the case for kinky people as well. And of course, when I said that the study found uh, that 36% of BDSM practitioners identify as bisexual, that's still a minority. Um, that's not most BDSM practitioners. That's only 36%. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess what I took from that study um, was that because that rate is so much higher than it is for the overall community, um, it suggests to me that for some kinky people, at least. Um, kink is so powerful that it overrides even gender, um, which is a really strong um, presence in a, in a lot of people's sexual lives. And uh, I think the the presence of something so um, powerful that it can that it can override something like gender is is worth the conversation. Uh, one of the kinky straight boys I know uh, that I met through a friend who was the guy who tied him up all the time. The way he described it was he loves bowling. He would prefer to bowl with women, but there are no women on this bowling league. Hmm, interesting. So, so he bowled with men, but he would describe BDSM and bondage, and he was uh, you know, a bondage nut, as an activity that he found very arousing, that he enjoyed, that he could tap into the arousal and the, the erotics of it regardless. But, but not as like an identity. No, but he, he very much strongly identified with it. But he was still straight identified, even as he was sort of bondage by. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that makes sense. And being non-exclusive is really important to me. So I want to um, really underline the point that there are people who find BDSM later in life or who um, incorporate kink to spice up their sex lives and find it very rewarding and don't feel that it is their orientation. And those people are totally part of the community to such to the extent that such a thing even exists. Um, there is freaky as everyone else. Um, as far as I'm concerned, anyone who self-identifies as kinky is 100% kinky, and that's awesome orientation or no. So although I feel that it is my orientation, I don't want to impose my experience onto uh, everyone else. Well, no, yes, you do, because you're not arguing in this piece that <laughs> kink is your orientation. You're arguing that it's an orientation. Well, if we zoom in um, and get real um, semantic about what I say, um, can we if we read your if we read oh. your piece and then ask you about it, that's not getting semantic. That's reading your piece and ask you about it. Are you backpedaling? Okay, well, Are you backpedaling when you want to say kink is not an orientation but your orientation? Because that's not what you argue in the piece. You argue am, not your. I'm I'm not backpedaling. What I'm saying um, is the last sentence of one of my paragraphs. Uh, I wrote kink is 
often so fundamental to our sexual identities that it has to be, at least in some cases, an orientation. Um, and I put at least in some cases and the word often quite intentionally because mm-hmm. I don't want to um, make blanket statements that end up excluding some people. Um, I'd like to point out that there are people who consider themselves heteroflexible or homoflexible. So I'd say that all sexual orientations have, you know, people who... Uh, who don't fit into simplistic, easy definitions, and every orientation has uh, some gray areas, and I think that's okay. I agree. I agree. I, and I've often said, actually, um, I'm sure regular listeners are, are sick of hearing this, and I'm going to find a new way to say it. That if you go to a kink event, if you go to a Folsom, if you go to a Thunder in the Mountains, uh, you go to a gay or straight kinky event. There are two kinds of kinky people you meet. You meet the people who are kinky when they were 12, the people who were jer- mm. jerking off about kink from the moment they became sexually aware. And you meet people yeah. who fell in love with those people and kind of grew into kink and now consider themselves kinky and are players and are into it, but they got into it because they were brought into it. And they're the people who are born into it and they're the people who are, you know, seduced into it. They fell in love with somebody kinky and got kinky. Yeah, and all of those experiences are equally valid. Um, I would say that um, I can identify my first kinky memories way before um, age 11 or 12 Um I remember being a little uh, freaky five-year-old and doing things that I didn't realize were kinky at the time. But uh, in hindsight, when I look back, I realized that um, my kink was present at that point. Um, And in my case, it's really fundamentally and inextricably linked with my identity. But as you said, um, there are people who have different experiences, and those experiences are equally valid. Okay, there are three quick things I want to cover before we let you go. First, um, got to get your opinion on Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> you know, I'll be honest with you, Dan. Um, I haven't read them. I did skim the first book, uh, and I've talked to people about it. And my understanding is that at the end of the trilogy, um, the vanilla character has, uh, Anastasia, I guess she is, um, has cured Christian of his you know, deviant, unhealthy kinky impulses and they um, get married and have babies and lots of what I can only assume is um, very healthy, normative vanilla sex. And that is not how it works. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's a little frustrating, um, you know, and and hurtful for people like me. I don't, I don't feel like I need to be cured. Um, And and also I would love to see a book that's written from uh, a masochist point of view, because there, there are no masochists in Fifty Shades of Grey, um, just a, a switch, I guess, um, a Christian character is. So uh, I'd love to see more uh, masochistic perspectives in the conversation. And, and how hypocritical, quickly, my thoughts on Fifty Shades of Grey, what you, what you just described, because I have never read it. I say I never watched Two Girls, One Cup for the same reasons I never read Fifty Shades of Grey. I, <laughs> nauseate, I get nauseated very easily. Um but everybody, all these women all over America who were masturbating, reading these books, weren't masturbating about the vanilla sex at the end of the third book. Yeah. That's not what was turning people on. It wasn't the sex that they had at the end when he was cured that was exciting and erotic. It was the crazy kinky sex. So why is everyone, why is that the happy ending? Oh, this hot sex, it's so fun and hot to think about that I wish I was having stops. Yeah, you know, I, I honestly can't speak for vanilla people, um, but I, I think that... Uh, a lot of people are very reassured by the idea that kink is a kind of damage that can be cured. Okay, while we have you on the phone, would you take a call with me? Uh, sure. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a young female, I'm a college student. I'm sort of just seeing several people um, of varying genders. I 
used to think of myself as somebody who had a lot of different kinks. I was very kinky myself and was very into BDSM type things. And I recently felt that this has kind of been taken away from me. I've been seeing somebody pretty frequently who is a bit older than me, a bit physically um, intimidating, and when we are having sex, does things that he expressly does not have permission to do, and I feel unable to communicate with him. It's really, really difficult for me to um, communicate and stand my ground and be assertive. I, I, I don't know why. He was the only person that I've ever been with that I felt this way about that I couldn't talk to, couldn't um, make myself clear on, and for some reason, uh, keep seeing. So I know step one, stop seeing him, I have. But I have still not really recovered the same excitement that I felt for the kind of sex that I used to have, the sex that I used to find most exciting, most uh, rewarding, doesn't seem as rewarding anymore, which is really unfortunate for me. You got any advice on, on sort of reclaiming that? That'd be great. I think this is an experience that a lot of kinky people have, particularly people who are submissive, where you get into a headspace and there's this expectation or you feel this pressure to submit, to live up to that role. And then you find yourself in bed with someone who takes advantage of that, what's supposed to be an eroticized consensual power exchange. And you end up with somebody who's abusing that gifted authority. And when you get out of that relationship, it can be really hard to get back in your sort of subby groove. It can really be hard to tap back into what you enjoyed about submissiveness in sex um, because you feel, I think wrongly feel, that your enjoyment of submission and sex somehow makes you responsible for having been abused and taken advantage of, and it does not. Yeah. And she needs to let go of that. Have you ever had this kind of experience? Yeah, I unfortunately, I haven't. And um, my heart really goes out um, to that caller because I have a few friends who have had this experience. And just as you said, Dan, um, they, they feel somehow responsible um, for it as if their sexuality invited that kind of treatment. Um, but of course, uh, I, I think we all know women of all orientations who have uh, had an abusive experience or an experience that violated consent, who then felt um, some social pressure, political pressure, or internal pressure to blame themselves um, for, for what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I haven't had that experience. Um, I've actually had very few experiences across the board. I've only had two uh, boyfriends in my life, and the second one is now my husband. Um, so I'm pretty, I'm pretty limited in that sense. I think that pressure to blame yourself must be magnified, you know, at least a hundredfold for someone who's submissive, who wound up in an abusive or wound up in bed with an abusive partner, someone who took advantage of that, someone who flew under the BDSM radar because what they wanted to do was be abusive. Because on some level you look at what happened and think, if we could tweak a few things, I would have enjoyed this. If there was consent, if there was negotiation, if I felt safe, if we weren't doing, you know, if we were doing A, B, C, and D, but not the E and the F that happened that I wasn't down with. Otherwise, this is kind of erotic. And I think that can really complicate someone's ability to process this sort of experience and forgive themselves for something that they didn't do and just get past it. And I would just say to the caller, you need to let that go. You know, I, I I do think that's a problem sometimes with BDSM or kink people who wind up in an abusive situation. And on, on some level, they think, well, consensual pseudo-abusive situations turn me on, and here's an actual abusive situation that that I stumbled into. 
yeah. while I was seeking the consensual pseudo-abusive situation. And so I am to blame. Kink is to blame. This wouldn't have happened to me if I weren't kinky. And that's just not true. And you need to let that go. Someone took advantage of you. Someone leveraged your kink against you to abuse you for their own reasons and own purposes. And it's his fault, not your fault. And that's why I think it's important, again, to really emphasize that there's nothing damaged about being kinky and there's nothing about kink that invites abuse, that kink is just another healthy and normal expression of sexuality. And um, any kinky partner or any partner who claims to be kinky um, needs to respect the same boundaries of um, consent and kindness and consideration that any other sexual partner would. And we have to hammer away always when we talk about kink with communication and consent, communication and consent, communication and consent until people who are kinky, submissive, dom, whatever the kink might be, you have to be able to talk about that. You have to be able to say what it is you want, say what it is you don't want. You need to communicate very effectively and clearly and, and advocate for yourself. Everyone needs to be able to do that, kinky or not. People who are not kinky, people who are vanilla need to be able to do that. But people who are kinky really got to be able to do that because the, 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 the potential for abuse, I think, is, is higher. Not that people in vanilla relationships are never abused. They are. But when you're playing with power, when you're playing with helplessness, you've got to be able to advocate for yourself. Yeah. Which is why it's important to have these conversations about kink. It's why it's important for people like you, Jillian, who are out about kinks, writing about kinks, talking about consent, and being the public face, in a way, for the spank community. <laughs> well, thanks, Dan. <laughs> how, does, how does your husband feel about being the public face for the spanking community? You know, it's funny. My husband is a doctor, and he just um, took a new job at an emergency room here in New York City. And uh, some of his colleagues... Um, gave me a Google and found some of my more colorful public admissions. Um, and he, you know, he laughs it off. I think, um, I think honestly between us, um, I think, uh, it, it makes him seem kind of cool. So <laughs> he, he's very supportive. Jillian Keenan, freelance writer in New York, go to her website, JillianNYC.com and look at her selected clips. There's a lot of really great stuff there and check out at slate.com right now is kink, a sexual orientation by Jillian Keenan. Thanks so much for jumping on the phone today, Jillian. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dan. Hi, Dan. I am a 31-year-old male, and uh, I just entered in a new relationship with a fantastic girl who is just a just every everything I could have ever dreamed for in a, in a partner and in a woman. She's beautiful. She is sexy. She's funny. Very creative. She's got a terrific quick wits, and we're into a lot of the same things, both in the bedroom and outside the bedroom, which is just fantastic. Uh, we're still in that early stage. It's only been about maybe two months that we've been dating, but there is long-term potential here, and we're still getting to know each other and still in that period that's kind of the uh, lust and food and sex part of the early part of the relationship. A couple nights ago, we were just laying in bed at her place talking, and she made mention that it's okay if you take uh, more charge or if you take control in the bedroom more often. I was a little taken aback by that, and I first asked her to clarify if it was just the bedroom or other parts, and she said, no, it's fine as far as, you know, outside the bedroom, but she said, you can go ahead and, you know, feel free. She she likes it like that. A little bit of quick background about me is I, I'm a big guy, and I'm a gentle giant. I don't like hurting people. I don't want to hurt people. I sometimes don't know my own strength or whatever it might be, and I just don't want to, uh, you know, I know the threshold of pain because we have experiment with things like that with like hair pulling and a little bit of grabbing and 
we both know where the level of tolerance is for the two of us. And so what I did is after that, I told her, okay, you got it. I can do that. And so we were talking and then we started making out a little bit. And then I rolled her on top of me and she really, really liked that. And then I rolled so that I was on top of her and I could tell that she was just moaning and really gasping and smiling at that. And then we, uh, we had great sex and fell asleep and it was wonderful. But I guess I just want to get some more advice from the master, as you refer to in, in my group of friends, about what are some other ways to take, take charge in the bedroom besides just, okay, I'm going to throw you on the bed and then have my way with you, or I'm going to roll you on top of me. What are some other ways from your perspective to take charge? Earlier when I was talking with Jillian Keenan, we emphasized the really crucial importance for people who are into kink or into BDSM, into any sort of power exchange during sex, which is what it sounds like your girlfriend is into and wants, to be able to communicate what it is they want. I can't give you things to try. I can't give you a list of ways you can seize control or throw your girlfriend around or be more dominant uh, in bed because my list might not job very well with what she wants. And you may end up doing things with her that she hasn't fantasized about that don't turn her on that then she feels obligated to let you do or go through with because she encouraged you to go in this direction. And she feels then that she can't correct you because then she's not being submitted. You don't want to go down that road. The onus is on your girlfriend to communicate with you about exactly how she wants to be thrown around, how she wants to be dominated, how she wants you to take control. And it can be boring and unsexy to just make a list or give somebody that you want giving you orders, orders to hand you your orders about how to order around. So you should do it with fantasy. You should do it with porn. You should do it with dirty talk because then it's not actually happening. You can be dirty talking, rolling around and kissing or just laying side by side kissing and just dirty talk. Tell her that the crazy dommy things you're going to do to her and see how she reacts. And if she reacts really positively, to something that you throw out, then you know that you can incorporate that physically in reality the next time you're really fucking or two minutes later when you're really fucking. But I'm not going to give you a list of, of things to try or things to surprise her with because I don't want to be a party to accidentally traumatizing her or accidentally traumatizing you. That's something we don't talk about when we talk about subs who get traumatized because doms went too far too fast. Sometimes subs are so non-communicative and just really encouraging the other person or pressuring the other person to make with the Dom sex that the Dom will try something and the sub will freak out or be unhappy or feel abused. And the, the top will sit there feeling unhappy and traumatized because the last thing they wanted to do was to hurt this person that they loved, that they were, whose needs they were trying to meet, that they were trying to give pleasure to by being a little dominant and scary and whatever else. So the onus is on her to communicate. The onus is on you to draw her out. And it does sound like, at least to now, you've been doing it absolutely right. You've been taking tiny little baby steps, right? The stuff that you've tried already, tiny little baby steps. Keep taking those tiny little baby steps in the context of good and ongoing and very specific and explicit communication between you both about what you're interested in and what she wants from you. This is not something that you can do because doming someone or taking charge in the bedroom, you just can't fly blind into that. You need parameters. You need suggestions. You can get creative once you have the lay of the land, once you understand the particular kind of 
charge she wants you to take, the particular kind of dummy subby stuff that she enjoys, then you'll develop a sense for what she likes and you can get a little bit more experimental. But now, the outset, she's got to talk to you. She's got to tell you. You've got to draw it out of her. You've got to communicate. You've got to engage in dirty talk before you do it and then do it. And you can't just do things that I might assign you. You've got to do the things that she is fantasizing about. You've got to do the things that she wants. And those things aren't going to happen and they can't happen if she's incapable of telling you what they are. Hey, Dan. I'm a 34-year-old woman from Canada. When I was 16 or 17, I discovered the World Wide Web and Internet chatting. I chatted with this guy from Florida, and we became obsessed with each other. He was 37. I was an innocent Christian virgin at the time, and he opened my mind to the wonders of erotica. It was a very hot and heavy telephone relationship for two years. Our attraction, despite being very sexual, was also cerebral. He was a writer and an intellectual, and I was too. And I was stuck in the middle of nowhere with a lot of time and imagination. Didn't know what one another looked like for one year into our phone relationship. Eventually, I did see photos of him, and he is a good-looking guy, but not that hot or not really my type. He bought a plane ticket to come visit me back in the day. We were going to meet in a city about an hour away and spend the weekend together, shacked up in a hotel, and pretend to be newlyweds. He even sent me wedding rings in the mail. At the last minute, my mom found out what was going on as she suspected something was up and grilled my friends for information and then grounded me. We never met. In retrospect, I'm glad it didn't happen then because it would have been too crazy. Eventually, the phone relationship between him and I faded out and I went on and lived my life full of travel and adventuring around. Now that I'm older, I have been curious to know what happened to this guy who I loved. And to this day, our dirty talk remains a part of my spank bank. I found him online and we started talking again on the phone. It hasn't gotten sexual yet, but the same chemistry is there. He invited me to come down and see him, and we tossed around the notion of going on a road trip to the Florida Keys and having a romantic getaway. The part I'm having trouble reconciling with is that this is the same guy who at 35 would have gone to Canada and fucked a 16- to 17-year-old girl. What do you think, Dan? Should I see this guy and have a crazy weekend of fun, or should I leave the past in the past and tell him he was a creep back then? He asked me what I think of it all, what happened in the past, and I have mixed feelings on it myself. But overall, I feel it was harmless because it was never actualized in real life. Please let me know if you think this guy is a creep or a keeper. A creep or a keeper. Those are my only options here. Is he a creep or a keeper? He's a creep. Definitely, absolutely, positively a creep. A middle-aged man, however sensitive, however artistic, who found on the World Wide Web a teenager, isolated teenage girl growing up in Florida somewhere in the middle of fucking nowhere – And began a kind of online sexual interaction with her, a grooming of her, convinced her to run away from home to join him in a foreign country, was it? Sent her wedding rings, plotted out this whole plan for him to get together with you and fuck you? Yeah, that's creepy. That's very deeply creepy. You have to wonder about how actually charming someone is who cannot locate an age-appropriate-ish sex partner in their own country, but has to dive into the World Wide Web and snag a vulnerable, isolated, lonely, desperate-for-attention teenager from somewhere out in the ether. No, he is a creep. I'm surprised when you talked about reconnecting with this guy and you had this conversation about that time and he asked you if he was a creep, 
if you didn't ask him if he had done this to other girls. I bet he has. Rarely does someone have this kind of elaborate game without having attempted it with others. So there were probably girls that he did get onto airplanes, that he did get into hotels, that he did get rings to, and he did nail. And it ain't okay. It ain't okay to leverage that kind of power against that kind of loneliness and desperation and need for attention against someone. It's really not okay. What may be leading you to want to see some good in him is that this interaction, however fucked up and creepy it was, it drew something good out of you. It awakened your sexuality. This inappropriate interaction with an adult who did not have your best interests at heart awakened in you something valuable, something pleasurable, something you've enjoyed over the course of your life. You shouldn't give him the credit for that. That wasn't his goal. His goal wasn't to better you. His goal wasn't to leave you with this sense of your sexual self, sense of sexual power. His goal wasn't to empower you sexually. His goal wasn't to please you. His goal was to fleshlight you. His goal was to jack off inside you. His goal was to get a teenage girl into bed because 27 year old girls could see through his bullshit and teenage girls could not. So don't give him the credit for what he found in you or what he accidentally awakened in you that was good and valuable and pleasurable. Because that's not his, that's yours. And that would have emerged from inside you whether you'd ever interacted with this man online or not. That was there waiting to burst forth because that was an intrinsic part of who you are. He may have been the catalyst that drew this all out of you and inspired you at that particular moment, but that was collateral benefit. Right? That wasn't what he was after. That wasn't what this interaction was about. I wouldn't see him if I were you. You will be disappointed, I guarantee you, if you hook up with him, if you go on a road trip with him to the Keys. Adult men who prey on teenagers online, vulnerable, isolated, lonely teenagers, aren't all evil, aren't pure, despicable Disney movie villain evil because no one would interact with them. They can be charming. They can have charisma. They actually must be charming. They must have charisma or they wouldn't get anywhere with anybody. So you have this impression of him as this charming, charismatic dude. And you look back fondly on these interactions because of what it stirred in you. That was about you, not about him. But that was a lie. All of it was a lie. All of it was a scheme. And if you actually meet up with him, it's going to be awkward. He is not going to be charming or charismatic in that way. And it will ruin your memories of these interactions. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and be a little dangerous. A lot of teenagers online, a lot of young people, young adults online, having virtual sex, having virtual interactions at a safe distance with others that they enjoy and will look back on and remember fondly. You look back on these interactions and you remember them fondly. You experience them as pleasurable and even joyful and enlightening. Leave it alone. He didn't have a chance to ruin those interactions by actually getting you to a hotel and fucking you, right? Don't give him the chance to ruin those memories of who he made you believe that he was then. Because if you meet him now in reality, face to face, in real life, you're going to realize that the person he led you to believe that he was then was a lie. And that person no more exists now than that person existed then. Let him be a memory. 
you can even let him be a fond memory, but he'll only remain a fond memory if you avoid the reality of this guy, because the reality of this guy is ugly. Hi, uh, I'm calling about the guy who could feel it in the tip of his penis when he rubbed his feet on the ground. And Dan, I just want to tell you, your guess sounds right. If you look at any human brain, the sensory neurons for each area of your body are laid out in a specific order. And feet are right next to genitals. So probably in this guy, they're not just right next to each other. They probably overlap a little. And if you or he wants to see what that looks like, you can look up sensory homunculus on Google and actually see how all of your sensory neurons are laid out. Hi, Dan. I just wanted to give some advice to the couple on the last episode about the man who's dating the stripper who wants to have an open relationship, but they're not sleeping together anymore. And then the couple after that of the woman who's bi and with a guy who doesn't understand her need to be with women. I haven't listened to the podcast for long, so I don't know if you talk about this much, but oh my God, swingers clubs, people. If someone in the relationship needs to be having sex with other people, but the other person is not really cool with that happening, seriously, swingers clubs are the best thing ever. You get to be involved in what your partner is doing. You get to witness everything firsthand. And oh my God, the sex you have after it's over is amazing and can keep you on a crazy high for weeks. That is my suggestion to seriously anyone who is thinking about opening up their relationship. Hi, Dan. Thanks so much for having the Orgy Dome guy on your show. Um, I'm a 32-year-old woman from the East Coast, and I just have to say that I love the Orgy Dome. I went there three times last year, and I am currently getting dreadlock extensions in my hair, and I'm um, talking about looking forward to going again to the Orgy Dome, um, and uh, I was listening to your podcast while we were talking about it. So thank you. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow this week's guests on Twitter at Jillian Keenan and at Joan Price. If you live in Austin, you get a chance now to see Hump, the Pacific Northwest's biggest, best, and only amateur porn festival. It's coming to the Marchesa Hall and Theater in Austin on September 5th and 6th. Go to humptour.com for more info. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth. We will all be back after next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.